and trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. So, we live in a pretty messed up world today. I I heard an amen to that, I guess. Yeah. It's, what's amazing though is that it's nothing new, you know. I like to think that the world is more evil today than it was in my youth, but that's just because in my youth I didn't see the evil of the day. So there's nothing new under the sun. And we do have an enemy that is actively uh, working against us, and that's important to remember and to not get discouraged. So I have uh, copies of my notes here. We're going to actually conclude this morning, so uh, we'll finish the last page of the notes. If anybody did not get one and would like one, we just got copies here. We've been talking about a, a period of time, uh, it's called the intertestamental period. So it was the time from uh, that began technically um, with uh, the Babylonian captivity. And that we know that there were the end of the prophetic writings occurred shortly after that, when the Persians conquered the Babylonians and the the Jews, as they were then called in a as a, as a uh, an offensive term towards them, uh, the Judean remnant that was taken into captivity, the Jews had been uh, released by the Persian king to go back into um, Jerusalem and rebuild. So, just to kind of set some context, I'm going to actually jump to the end and not review the whole thing today, but uh, I I have a tendency to do that. But if you look at where they were at and where they ended up, so they were originally, I think this is all the way out, Um, so this is Israel, this region right here, and at various points in time, Israel extended up into Syria. Um, and over into Moab and Edom, and that would have been the Davidic kingdom. But at the time that they, uh, at the end of the era of the kings, that you read about from both the kings and the chronicles in the Bible, Israel had become significantly uh, less. The Assyrians in the north had come down and conquered the northern kingdom here, and actually completely encircled uh, the tribe of Judah one point. In fact, they came up through the hill country from Lachish, uh, which we'll actually visit when we go to Israel here in just a little under a year. And uh, they pushed up the hill country and came all the way to the edge of Jerusalem. And at that point, God turned them back. And that was under King Hezekiah. But subsequent to that, the Babylonians came in and they basically came all the way in, conquered this, and took these captives all the way back to Babylon, and to other areas, Susa, and other parts of the Babylonian kingdom. And the Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians, but at this point that they had been uh, conquered, the Jews, the Jewish remnant, the remnants of Judah, had uh, pretty much settled in the land. And so they had um, established businesses, their families had grown, so they were starting to restore their numbers, um, had some prosperity. So a very few number actually came back to resettle uh, Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, 
and to subsequently rebuild the wall and to reestablish the tribe of Judah in the land that God had promised. So that's what the intertestamental period is about, is about that subsequent post-exile when they were still a conquered people. They were still under the dominion of either the, the Persians or the Greeks or uh, they, they have a brief period of independence, so kind of, during the Hasmonean period when the Greeks were kind of fighting it out north-south, and then they were subjugated under the Romans. And that leads into the, the time of the New Testament, which we pick up in the Gospel accounts. So when we read the, about the birth of Christ in the Gospel account, from the last prophetic writing in Malachi, it's over 400 years. And so that sometimes is called the period of silence, um, but God was active in that period of time. So I've, I've stressed two themes that were important to a conquered people, especially the Jews that were actually central to them. Can anybody tell me what those two, two themes were that were very significant to this remnant people? Temple. The temple. The temple was the place uh, that was central for them it was the center of their cultic practice, certainly. That's what their religious practice was centered around. But it means much more than that. The temple was the place where they actually communed with God. So we, we understand, we come into to fellowship, and I'll get to you here in just a second, Daniel. Um, we come into fellowship as a separated people. So there are two things that we need to, to have resolved in order to... Uh, commune with God. First, we have to have access to him because we've been separated from him. And that's spelled out in the book of Leviticus, how uh, the people would gain access to the, the court of the king through the sacrificial system. But then the point of that is not just to have access to God, but to actually fellowship with him. And that's what actually occurred in the temple. In that there was a, a an access, a presentation of the sacrificial Offering both for atonement, for forgiveness, for guilt offering, but also for fellowship, right? And so my word for that is a hoedown. Um, you got music and vittles, and it's a, it's a good old time, right? And they actually did that. And I think uh, Patty, not Patty, um, Robin called it uh, a picnic, right? So it's kind of like what we do when we do a, a potluck, and they. Part of that offering, the grain offering and the wave offering as part of the uh, fellowship offering and the sin offering, was actually presented back to the priests and to the people. And so that we understand that that was a time of communion first with God and communion with each other. So temp the temple was central to this, these people. What was this, the other, other aspect? Daniel, you had your hand up. Maybe uh, you comment before that. The place. The place, uh, the place that God that was promised to them. King, the kingship. Right. And so associated with that, I guess you would call it the identity of the people. Right. That they are God's people. Right? They are God's chosen people. And what does it mean that the the Hebrews were God's chosen people? That they were his and they were chosen by him and that they were chosen for, um, for a certain reason. Uh, and they had no, they had no, um, they had hookers in their beard too. Yes, <laughs> yes. So that's a Davism. So, um, they're exactly that. That um, they're chosen by God for a purpose. So I'm not of Hebrew descent, at least as 
not that I know of. Um, you know, I've not got online and figured out my genealogy. Maybe there's somebody of Jewish heritage somewhere in my background. I don't know that, but I don't think so. Um, I'm pretty much from the melting pot Northern European. And uh, so I wasn't one of those chosen of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and in a sense, that could be a sense of national pride, right? It's like these are God's chosen people, right? But as you said, no, they weren't chosen because they were beautiful or because they were gifted. In fact, they were pretty, pretty base and uh, pretty regular, um, and they had boogers in their beard, as, as I would say. You know, so they've got lots of imperfections, and their imperfections we read about throughout the Bible, and how God continued to be faithful in the face of their unfaithfulness. Right. So it says something about who God is. It also says something that these people weren't chosen because they were special. They were chosen because they were part of God's plan. And it was a plan of redemption for all people. And that through this uh, line of the promise, the promise that was given to Abraham, and that was passed through in the promised son, Isaac, and then was passed through to the one who did not have the birthright, Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel after he had wrestled with God. We understand that that promise comes all the way through, through this people group, and that this people group were intended to be a nation of priests. So their identity would be one of being special in the world because the priest brings the people to God. Right? The prophet brings God to the people, but the priest brings the people to God. And that we understand that that was all played out in their cultic practice, their sacrificial system, and the religious things that they did, their pilgrimages, and the, the holidays that they kept, and the, the way that they entered their house and exited their house and talked to their kids. And the whole, the whole smash of their culture was all around um, this idea that they were to be a kingdom or a, a chosen people, a nation of priests, to bring um, the, the people, God's people, into his presence. And I would say that we are part of God's people. We are called the nations. Um, so if you look at how the Bible divides the people groups in the world, there is this one group of people, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, that um, were to have this, this priesthood role. But then there are the, everybody else. They call them the nations. And uh, the Greek word for that is ethnos. And the uh, English word for that is Gentile. Right? So you had the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, and you had the Gentiles, everybody else. So that's us. So this people group is intended to fulfill a very important role for us. And what happened, and would happen to any people group, so if we become a conquered nation... I would expect there would be a rally around what we would call patriotism. We want to preserve our identity and the purpose for which we believe we have been called. Any people group would do that. And that was what was happening to this group of people that were the remnants um, of the, the tribes of Jacob, the sons of Jacob that became tribes. They went from a tribal um, organization to a kind of a state organization where they had their boundaries laid out 
And then they became a nation under David, and they became an empire under Solomon. And then they started shrinking back the other way to the point that all that was left was one distinct tribe. So their identity was really important. And when you look at what was written in the final prophetic writings to them, it was all about the temple, and it was all about their place in history. That God was working through them to redeem them and to redeem the world. That Messiah, this concept of one who was anointed by God for a special purpose, that he would come and he would actually administer over the kingdom of God. He would be the king. That he would actually commune with his people. That you would have those that have citizenship in the kingdom and would be in submission to the king. The Messiah, that's what the Messiah was about. And these people had had that given to them prophetically, that it was promised through the line of David. right? So when we look at Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, it talks about a specific promise that was given to David that the Messiah would come through his line. So that line had to be preserved. No matter what we think might happen in the world, God's plan is actually playing out. And so when you look at evil times, like when Doeg the Edomite betrayed David and, and Saul was trying to kill David, David was actually secure because he was in God's hand. And he was part of God's plan. And it was essential that he actually continue. And, and we actually can have that confidence too. That not that we have the, the role that David does, Messiah is not coming through our family line, but the Messiah has already come, and we are his ambassadors to the world. So now we have taken on part of that priestly role. As Gentiles, uh, we are priests to the nations. We are ambassadors to the nations. We are no longer citizens of this world, but citizens of the kingdom of God, if you're saved. And, and he translates your citizenship from one of a citizenship in, in darkness in the world to a citizenship in the kingdom of light. And now you have a responsibility. And the reason you're still here, no matter what evil might occur in your life, is because God still is working his plan, both individually in your life and corporately, I use that word corporately, and sometimes people want to understand what an explanation of that is. What I mean is, in a larger group social context, right? So, um, a sociologist would call it a corporate idea. So, God is working both individually in our lives and corporately. And that's exactly what was happening in this intertestamental period. And that the peoples, and, uh, you know, I can't remember, it's not this one. Not this one. In the uh, open uh, particular. Might have been this one. No, not that one. You got that in your notes. I did this last week, too. Um, Maybe it's this one. Yeah, this is the one. This is the one you wanted mailed to you, right? Okay. So this is kind of, in a nutshell, what was... No, that's not it. (laughs) Sorry. This. Uh, see, here it is. Six rulers over Palestine. So, going back to the map, that area of Israel sometimes is called the, the land in between uh, because when the armies are trying to get from the north to the south, from the south to the north, guess where they go through? 
They go through Israel. In fact, uh, the area is, is not like a freeway. It's rugged land. But there were particular routes that people would take. And when we go to Israel, we'll actually retrace some of those routes. We'll look at the coastal route. We'll look at the, the King's Highway up along the Dead Sea, up through the Rift Valley, um, all the way up to Damascus. We'll look at the trade routes that would run across uh, Arabia to, to uh, Gaza at the coast. We'll look at the Patriarchal Highway, which follows the, the coastal or follows the hill country all the way through north-south. It's called patriarchal because the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, followed that, that footpath through. Well, when the armies came through, they followed the same routes. There's nothing new under the sun. And so when the north and the south were having their fights, when uh, the Greeks came to conquer Egypt, two great empires, um, they went right through Israel. And that area had become renamed, at least from a literature perspective, to Palestine. And it's a, a diminutive term that was that they were a, a, a people that were oppressed, and the first people that we read about oppressing them were the Philistines, right? And the, the Philistines tried to conquer and claimed to conquer uh, uh, that they were the kings over Israel. Actually, they only conquered the coastal plain. They never got the hill country. We read about their different skirmishes. But to call that area Palestine is really uh, saying something negative about that area. That that's an area that has been an area that's been conquered for years and years and years. And the north and the south um, went through uh, that area. And the first to come through were the Persians. After the Babylonians, uh, first the Assyrians and the Babylonians, in this intertestamental period, the first that came through there were the Persians. And the Persians extended out their empire. And I think I have a picture of that. Let me see if I can find it here. No, that's a timeline. Maybe I won't. Okay, I won't try and go there. Um, so I'll just, I'll do this thing with my hands. <laughs> so you got, actually I know how I can turn it on. I'm going to turn it on to my map. There was the Persian Empire, which was, was pretty large, right? It actually was larger in scope than the Babylonian Empire. All the way from the border of India and that part of the world, all the way pushing into uh, Palestine and down to, to Egypt. So the Persians were pretty, pretty uh, broad. Uh, the subsequent to the Persians were the Greeks, and the Greeks were even larger. So they uh, not only conquered everything that the Persians conquered, but they conquered more. Um, they went up further to the northwest in their conquering. And then subsequent to that, um, what you'll see is uh, a split. So we understood that, uh, and you read about this in Daniel chapter 8. Uh, you read about it in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 2, where you, you know, in chapter 2 you got this Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream of the statue, and in chapter 7 you have that explained further. In chapter 8 it describes it as far as the nations that are actually going to play in that, right? And so what, what's happening here is that this is all according to God's prophetic plan, that the Babylonians taking the Jews captive with no surprise, that the Persians coming in and conquering the Babylonians with no surprise. Um, and then when you get to the Greeks and the Greek rule, Alexander was uh, uh, 
an expert strategist. He knew military strategy. He learned from his father uh, specific um, rules of war that were, made him very successful, and he conquered in a very short period of time. He didn't learn the three, one of the, the three classic blunders, though, did he? He didn't. That's right. He didn't learn. So what is what is one of the classic blunders? Never get involved in the land war in Asia. Exactly. <laughs> Princess Bride. So uh, never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Anyway, so um, Alexander, in a very short period of time, about 10 years, actually conquered the world, as the world was in those days, right? Well, when he died, his kingdom was split up into, uh, there were five generals, essentially, four that were prominent, and his kingdom was split into four parts. And that degenerated into essentially a north and a south. There were two parts, ultimately, as kind of history played itself out. There was the Ptolemaic Empire in the south and the Seleucidian, Seleucidian Empire in the north. And so the northern part would be called Syria, and the southern part would be called Egypt. And we understand that that conquering in the, in the south, the Ptolemaic Empire, is where we got our Greek uh, Old and New Testament. Old Testament in that they took the Hebrew scriptures and they translated them into Greek, it's called the Septuagint, and that they were very much into Hellenizing the world, bringing Greek culture into everything. And so what we see is the apocryphal writings are in addition to the Septuagint, the Old Testament, of both the law, the prophets, and the writings, all of that was translated over a period of 200 years. Uh, and the law was translated in 70 days. Um, all of that and the apocryphal writings were influenced strongly by Greek culture. And the apocryphal writings were specifically an attempt to marry Greek culture with Hebrew uh, theology. Right? So when you look at the Apocrypha, that's what it's about. Now there's some historical stuff in there. There's the Maccabees, um, which is subsequent to this. So if we look at these six periods of rulers over Palestine. So can you define the Apocrypha here? Pardon? I thought it was Revelation, that, but I can't So what, what is the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha. Okay, so the Apocrypha um, is not. Um, yeah, it's extra biblical. Correct. Correct. Apocalypsis is the revelation. It's the Greek word for revelation. Apocrypha is the collection of writings that um, that make up this writings from this intertestamental period that are not scripture. Where did that name come from? Did that name come out of the canonization process? Um, I I don't know. I'd have to do some, I'd have to do some research. The <laughs> No, it's it's that okay. What makes what makes something part of the scripture? What makes it uh, included in our Bible? Well, it was something they had to decide. Pardon? That was a question, and they had to decide. <clears throat> well, it isn't that they just drew straws. So if it was a prophetic origin, and they could name the prophet and the prophet actually identified himself in the writing, like the, the uh, Samuel was not actually penned by Samuel, but it was uh, written down by Nathan and Gad, and those were uh, acknowledged prophets, then that would be part of the prophetic writings, right? And the law, the Torah, the first five books, was uh, attributed to Moses 
and the scribe there was Joshua, right? So they know who wrote it, approximately when it was written, um, and so all of what we call the prophets and the law have a very uh, clear heritage identification of their correct so part of the apocrypha includes what <clears throat> what's called pseudepigraphal writings so it would be a writing that was done in somebody else's name so they took a historical character that had authority in the culture and they would use his name um, in their writing to essentially write on his authority or her authority and this was in that attempt to colonize yes so yes. it was recognized even in that era that this was not the voice of God. This was correct. That there wasn't a clear uh, relationship to prophet Moses or um, what are known as the the writings, the wisdom literature. Revisionism, the same thing. It is <laughs> absolutely. It, there's a revisionism that happens, and that in fact, what happened, and and this eventually devolved into a two people group, Sadducees and Pharisees, that the, the law and the prophets, um, as they were recorded, uh, there was a, a group that felt that there was more than just the written law, there was also the oral law. That which was given to Moses um, by God at Mount Sinai that wasn't written down, but was passed down through the line of Aaron. And that part of the scribal and priestly role was to preserve this oral law. Well, when they became a conquered people, and all of a sudden the scribes and the priests were spread out all over the place, and um, they weren't getting the religious training that they had previously had, there was a concern that they would lose the oral law. So they started writing it down. And that writing it down became what is called the Mishnah. It is the codification of the oral law. Then there's a whole bunch of commentary on the, on the oral law and the written law, and that's called the Talmud. And so you have these other bodies of writings that were not part of the law or the scriptures that one group of people, the Pharisees, strongly believed that the oral law had the same um, authority as the written law. And the way that that is expressed to us is tradition. Tradition, right? The fiddler on the roof. Well, tradition, and we understand that Christianity too. What what is one of our uh, chief traditional uh, sects of Christianity or or denominations of Christianity? Lord's table. Pardon? Lord's table. Well, we we have sacrament that is preserved. Sunday is. Sunday is a day of worship. So, so there you're seeing actually that carrying forward of oral law, tradition. And that the codification of that in Christianity was accomplished by the Catholic Church. The Orthodox Church that was concerned about preserving tradition in addition to Scripture. And it was that group that actually canonized the New Testament. Right? They said, what's the authorship? Is this from God? Can you draw a clear line like you can draw from the prophets to the people? Can you do that with the New Testament? And that's what the authorship became one of the primary distinctives of what became the the canon rule, the rule of how you determine this was from God or not. 
So if it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the authorship was established, clearly understood, and that gave it uh, authority. If it was from Paul, that gave it authority in the Christian church. There were some that they didn't know who the author was. Book of Hebrews, right? That was one of the last to come in. And the way that they managed to bring the book of Hebrews into the canonized scripture is they attributed it to Paul. And a lot of people would disagree with that. Um, There were others that were just like that, where they were very late to come in because they couldn't uh, authenticate the authorship or the prophetic utterance. But what we have has gone through very rigorous review by people a lot smarter than me that they, you know, done the research, they've done the work, they've determined that, yeah, this is, this is God's revelation, apocalypse, to humanity of his person, his character, nature, his plan, that which he has accomplished in Christ and is accomplishing in Christ, both a past, a present, and a future. Um, and that's what makes up our canon. Now, there's anything outside of that. So if you read... Uh, Uh, Dan Brown's popular novels, right? He'll cite all sorts of extra-biblical literature. He'll give you uh, Gnostic Gospels, for example, as support for his position. That Gnostic Gospel is not part of our canon. Thomas Thomas and Barnabas and others that were uh, cited as authority, but they were not acknowledged as providing uh, prophetic literature. If you want to have a list of all the books that you should pay no attention to, <laughs> just watch the History Channel during one of their periodic orgies of yes. trying to undercut the scripture. We're talking about you know books that were banned from the Bible or whatever. Yep. There was good reason. I mean, the, you know, the Exhibit A, Gospel of Judas. Right. Uh, duh, he was dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and the easy way to find out what you shouldn't pay attention to is if it's not in here, what orthodox Christianity is, is this, is your word that God has given to you and preserved for you. And the division that occurred in orthodox Christianity was about who could interpret that for you, whether you could interpret it yourself, that it should be in the language of the people, or whether you required a priesthood to interpret that for you. So that's, that's really the argument. And ultimately, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that he died for your sins, that the accomplished, what he accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection, both your, um, your forgiveness, your atonement, um, and your eternal life, then regardless of what you believe about tradition and what you believe about the priesthood, um, you're saved. And that's why there are people saved in the Catholic faith, and there are people that are saved in Baptist faith, and I would say that they're radically different. I'm seeing a jaw go open there, but I know Catholic Christians. Catholic does not mean heretic. It means orthodox. That's what it means. So um, the Catholic Church, I know that that they do have the Apocrypha in their... Bible. Yes. So they believe it is canon? Or um, is there an asterisk behind the book? It's okay, they don't read the Bibles. <laughs> well, so, so what, what is really important 
in Catholicism. So one of the distinctives between the Protestant uh, denominations and Catholicism is the role of tradition. The role of how you look at um, both that which comes down through the priesthood, through the Pope, and the authority of that in interpretation of that scripture. So they would include extra-biblical writings as a result of the scholastic period. So when you get to uh, Thomas and, and others that came later in the scholastic movement, and they were all about understanding the, the doctrine and the theology of the Bible, they would include extra-biblical literature because that's important in interpretation. However, they required a priesthood to add a, you know, appropriately interpret that. And the argument was, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit interprets for you. Right? You should have access to the scriptures such that you can read and understand and be enlightened. Yes? So, I'm all about how should we then live. <laughs> yes. And so, um, we kind of started today with talking about the, um, the Abrahamic covenant. Right. So that the, the Jews were a chosen people. And yet, through this period, they're dispersed all over the place. Yep. Um, so, you, I mean, in a way, you have to kind of question, you, you know, what's the Abrahamic covenant? I mean, they sinned, okay? <laughs> and they paid the consequences throughout history. Right. Um, and this particular time we're studying is one of those times where they were yep. maybe paying the consequences. So fast forward to the church. Yep. So Jesus comes, and he basically brings a new covenant, of which we can be adopted in. Correct. Okay. Everlasting covenant. Yeah, an everlasting covenant. But I've been reading in John. <laughs> Good. And so I, I don't want to derail us here, but I, I just want to read a couple of verses, sure. can I? And sure. This is 1 John chapter 2. Mm-hmm. And it says, if anyone sins, he has an advocate. Um, it says, if, if we know him, we will keep his commandments. Yep. He who does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And then in 6 he says, and uh, if we abide in him, we should walk as he. Jesus. Okay. So, the commandment, 323, 1 John. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So, so in a sense, Jesus reinterpreted the commandments for us. And if we think of Old Testament law, which Jesus fulfilled, and he was very zealous for it. In fact, more zealous than the Pharisees. He fulfilled all of the law. And that's because he understood what the law was. The law is not uh, a checklist of behaviors that we need to keep. Rather, it's a condition of the heart that we need to have. It's how we enter into communion with God. He said, be holy for I am holy. How do you be holy? You have to have a complete transformation of your heart. It's not a matter of of, um, how you pray or when you pray or what you pray. It's a matter that you pray. Who are you talking to? 
And so um, that's where John says, let's get it right. There's one thing that's important, and that's what all of this period is going towards. There's one thing that is important, and that is God's Redeemer. <clears throat> and as a result of that, the love which He has poured out on us through His Son allows us to pour out that love to the world. Love one another. So John's all about the one another's. But my point is that like, like, is, like Israel did, we sin. As a, as a country, right. we've sinned. Yes. Um, I've sinned personally. And I'm, not, and I'm always asking myself. And, and that's why we need an, an advocate. Yeah, so, but it's just interesting that there's, through history, there's a covenant. There is. But that covenant, it's not that it's broken, it's that, well, I don't know. Well, it has been broken by us, but God is faithful even when we are faithless. He remains a true husband even when his wife is a harlot. I mean... You can't get any more plain than that language. It's like in your face. This is the R-rated Bible, right? Uh, let me go to Daniel back here. What's the definition of Messiah? Anointed. The, the word actually means anointed. So this is the one who um, was anointed, in this case, with the Holy Spirit, um, for God's purpose. So they would anoint kings for the purpose of being a delegate king or the divine king. Um, there is one who is anointed by God, the Father. And his anointment is both as prophet, priest, and king. Is that when he got baptized? Yes, that would, that would be the visual, uh, visceral understanding of it. So those that were standing there is like, whoa, what just happened? I just saw the heavens open and speak and a dove descend upon this one. Um, I was going to say that one of the big things that you see when you look at the history of Israel and the law is that, and the covenant that God and the promise that he gave the land, the place. Yep, people, place. was very pivotal in that was that they were to be, you know, all the law points to them being in the world and not of it. Right? Well, and the place that they were at in Jerusalem there, just yes. you know, tactically speaking, yes. just so happened to be this hub of all the nations yes. you know, raging around them. Yep. And yet there they are to show. And, and they're of no consequence, and yet they're at the heart. Right. And, and But what I would say is, is that the people had in their hearts thought that they were special and had an entitlement in the land. That the promise was that they would be God's people in God's place in his kingdom with his presence, his blessing, right? That was the promise. And you go back to the promise to Abraham. Well, they took that as, hey, we have entitlement to this land. We are to be the world rulers. And Messiah is going to restore us in the land and make us the world rulers because they were a conquered people and they had no land. It was taken away from them. And when we look through this period... Uh, grab my pointer here. We look through this period, the Egyptian-Syrian rule was that uh, deterioration of the Alexander the Great's kingdom into two uh, rulerships, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And what happened is, is if you look, and, and this goes into what the people were thinking, 
That's why I'm bringing this up. That's not the one I want. Oh, I keep losing what I'm looking for here. Yeah, I need some help. Do one of the Pharisees say, oh, I've never been a, I've never been a slave or something like that? Let me look at this. I think it's just an hour. What Jesus says, we'll yeah. set you free. Yeah. Your reaction is, we've never been a slave. We've never been a slave. Probably because I have a whole bunch older. There we go. Okay. So, um, so here's, here's what's going on. So this is the, the Persian era. Alexander the Greek comes in. Um, it gets split up uh, into five pieces and four pieces then two pieces. And the, the fifth piece was almost immediately absorbed. That's why Daniel talks about the four divisions. Um, you have, now if you're in Palestine, right? So you're down here along this timeline right here uh, at the bottom. What you would see is first you're under Persian rule, then you're under the Ptolemies. And the Ptolemies were the kingdom of the south, the Egyptian rule. And that's why there's so much Greek influence on what's going on in Palestine. But at a particular point in here, the Syrians from the north pushed in through Palestine all the way down and, and were fighting against Egypt. And that was be what we call the Seleucidian rule or, or dynasties. And that's when you have uh, Antiochus and, and Seleucius come in as far as the kings. And they progress up through Antiochus uh, IV, called Antiochus Epiphanes. And at that point, there was a desecration of the temple. But the people were still conquered. They were still under this, this uh, rule of the Greeks. That's when there was a revolt. And from that point forward, what you actually see is you see a change. That, that the Greeks, even though the Seleucids were there, up through the Romans finally conquering them, um, there was a, a, a period of independence, relative independence, among the peoples. And that period of independence is what we call the, the uh, Hasmonean uh, rule. And let me see if I can get it on here. Okay. Um, in this period uh, right here, Jewish independence, the Maccabees uh, and, and the, the family around uh, the Maccabees set up a rulership under the Seleucids. And they managed to uh, get a degree of independence to the point where there was one, and I think I've probably got it highlighted here. I know I'm going to go back. And this is in my notes. Right here, in very small writing, which nobody can read, but that's why I distributed the notes to you. It says, Simon also became high priest by popular vote. This is um, one of the descendants of the Maccabees. And what happened is, in this period of independence, um, they started, uh, and it happened actually under the Seleucidian rule with Antiochus Epiphanes, um, that the priesthood no longer was, the high priest was no longer through the rule of Aaron or through the lineage of Aaron, but rather it was up for vote or up for buy, purchase. You could purchase it. And what happened is, is in this period of independence, the people really wanted a place of their own and they really wanted a king of their own. They wanted to be self-destined. They wanted to rule their own kingdom. And that's what Simon did. He consolidated the kingship with the high priest. And it was no longer one that was determined through the line of Aaron, which was according to that which God had spoken to them. This is how the priesthood's going to work. 
right? This is really important. This is how you bring the people to me. Rather, what happened is, is it got, it got uh, caught up in the world. So the people, even though the promise was that they would be God's people in God's place with his blessing, his presence, that was a promise to the whole world, to all of the descendants of Abraham. So that includes us. But they got caught up in their specialness. And so their understanding of Messiah was one who would be a political ruler. Like the Judas guy? Yeah, like the Maccabean or the Hasmonean rulers. And what happened is, is that in that period of time, when the Hasmoneans were ruling, that period of Jewish independence, they actually started pushing their religious theology and practice out on the nations around them. Not by attraction, but by oppression. And they forced uh, Edom, the Edomians, to become Jews. And it would be, a result of that would be that there would be one come in by the name of Herod, who was of Edomian descent. And he could rightfully claim to the Romans, who didn't know anything about this, that he was Jewish. Because under this Hasmonean rule, they had forced that on his family. So he made a deal with the Romans. Pompey conquered the Greeks, and Octavian put an end to, to, the, to that Ptolemaic line with Cleopatra and Mark Antony, right? And he conquered, and at that point, Herod in 37 BC made a deal with the Romans. He said, make me king, and I'll be your puppet. And so Herod came into play. What was the mindset of the people? They, they were concerned they about were, the temple. They weren't, uh, they weren't uh, um, a captured people, or, or they, they, were, they felt like they, they were independent. Like the they felt they were independent, which is why they hated Herod. Is this Herod the Great? Herod the Great. Builder? Yep, the Great Builder. They hated Herod the Great. One, he wasn't really Jewish. He he couldn't track his line through one of the tribes. So if, if the way that you are special is because of your lineage, and you need to be able to trace yourself back to one of the 12 tribes, right? And, that, and the, the promise of the land was to the 12 tribes. It wasn't to the world. Well, that's not true. The promise was is that we would have a place in God's kingdom. And that might include a piece of real estate, and it might not. It, it includes a place in heaven, Right? And that that's what these people group were supposed to understand, and they didn't get it. All the way through the kings, all the way through the captivity. How could they understand how they can't even understand everything? But that's why Jesus came. So it's like this had to play all the way out to the very end of those chosen people and the corruption of those chosen people, both in their leadership and in their cultic practice. The high priest had to be not one of ironic descent. The political practice had to be one of the peoples around them, not where you have a divine king. Such that they people would experience when what happened when um, the people called out for a king in Samuel. They got the wrong king. God said, No, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a king. But guess what this king is gonna do? He's going to enslave you. He's going to tax you, take everything that you've got. He's going to make your children his slaves. 
that he's going to be behind and protected while your people are out in front getting slain. That's not the divine king. That's the human king. He said, yeah, that's what you'll get. So that when the divine king comes and people realize that they're truly in captivity, he can set the captives free. And that's what we read about in Isaiah. Right? And Jesus actually read that. And, and I'll get to you here, Alan. Let's take a look at Isaiah real quick. And, and we're getting close to the end of time. So, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. So Jesus, when he came at this perfect time in history, answering to these people that were under the Herods, that were under the Romans, that were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for a Messiah for the wrong reason. They were looking for a different kind of Messiah. This is what Jesus said. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped right there, and he said, In your hearing, this is fulfilled. He didn't finish the sentence. And the day of vengeance of our God. Because there is a cost associated with sin. There is a price. And that price had to be paid. And it had not yet been paid. That the vengeance, the rightful anger of God towards sin for destroying that which he called good, and not just good, but very good, that anger had to be appeased. That blot had to be covered over. That ransom had to be paid. And Jesus was on the way to do that. But he hadn't got there yet. So, um, Alan, and then we'll have to close. Uh, it seems to me that the Maccabean leaders were from the priestly house anyway. Because Matthias, you know, you had the five sons. Right. Uh, he was a priest. So they, could, they, had, they had at least a minimal claim to legitimacy. Uh, when Herod the Great uh, was seeking additional legitimacy, I mean, he had it from the Romans, but he married a Hasmonean princess named Mariamne. Right. And that way he could claim legitimacy uh, to the Jews because he married a princess of what had been the royal house. Right. So there, and that, and that's the political intrigue of the day that was happening to gain legitimacy of the authority that you claim, whether that authority is true authority from God or not. Um, and what we proclaim today as Christians, and this is where we'll close, is that. The true king has come and will return. Amen. And that king is both man and God, fully man, fully God, the man Jesus, the Christ. Our citizenship in heaven was won by him. So in a sense, the king went first into the, into the evil horde to conquer death itself. For us, 
He didn't send those in front of him as captives. Rather, he set the captives free. That's what that intertestamental period was setting up. That's what all of that literature that we read about was pointing towards in a broken way. Even the apocryphal literature has value. Because it's trying to figure out how the true God can work in a broken world. But what we need to keep in mind is that the way of the world is not the way of the Lord. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We need to be in his camp, not him coming into our camp. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. And what I, before we do that, I'll announce that uh, uh, the following four weeks, I won't be here. Uh, three weeks in India, and then a week in, in Phoenix. Not a week, but a weekend. Uh, my son's getting married, and uh, so that's a cool thing. And I have no clue what's ahead of me in India, so that'll be a cool thing too. Um, but in that four-week period, uh, Pastor Bob and others will be uh, stepping forward to teach, and they've got some great topics. But I think the way has been set now for just about anything that they would care to preach on. Um, so let's go ahead and close in, in uh, prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for opportunity to come to your word today. We thank you for opportunity to look at what was happening in that period that you have preserved for us through a lot of different uh, literature, Lord, and that there is a point to what you're doing, and we need to be encouraged by that, that we are not overcome by evil, but that we are safe in your loving kindness, that you are our Lord and our rock and our redeemer. And we're so thankful for that, Lord Jesus. We just want to praise you. We want to thank you. Lord, we thank you for your provision for us, for your protection of us in this evil world. Lord, we thank you that you cared so much that you left your throne in heaven to come and serve us by dying on the cross. Lord, we love because you first loved us, and we thank you for that. Lord, we ask that you be with uh, Bob this morning as he presents your word out of 1 Peter. We uh, ask that your blessing be upon all in this room and uh, ask that you would protect us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all this. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.